we thought what better way to begin a new year than by talking about the end of the world, right? Not too bad. Hey, I want to welcome you. I'm Pastor Tim. I do want to welcome you to our brand new series that we're calling 2000X, in which we are really looking at the Bible, prophecy, and future events. And, and I don't know what that stirs up in you, because for some people, prophecy or, or forecasting the future, it's like a source of fascination. They get all excited about this because it's like, oh, how do we connect the dots of current events in today's newspaper? It's fascinating for you. For others of you, maybe it stirs up a little bit of fear because there's the uncertainty of that. You look at everything that's going on in the world and it makes you kind of scratch your head at times. And if you're honest, at other times it actually makes you want to pull the covers up over your head. But fascination and fear, if we're honest, everyone has a little bit of a mixture of both when it comes to this topic. And that's understandable. In 1966, Robert F. Kennedy, he was serving as a senator of the United States at that time. He said this, like it or not, we live in interesting times. They are times of danger and uncertainty. On a personal level, when I think about all that I have witnessed over my brief 30-something years on earth, we live in interesting times for sure. I mean, I personally have witnessed several historic events like the collapse of communism, for instance. I mean, that was an incredible moment the previous generation thought would never happen with the fall of the Berlin Wall. This was 1989. We witnessed the end of the Cold War and the subsequent collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, again, unprecedented in modern times. Ten years later, on September 11th, history struck again, this time on American soil, and our nation was introduced to this global war on terror, and we quickly learned this is going to be a war that looks different from anything we previously fought, because there's no single enemy with an identifiable army, but a network of shadowy terrorists intent on bringing jihad to the West. You saw probably this past week, as I was even preparing, a Nigerian national boarded a Northwest Airlines flight with explosives in his underwear because he was told by God to bring jihad to this country. Incredible times, interesting times, times of danger and uncertainty. Currently, we are fighting wars on two fronts, in Iraq and Afghanistan, simultaneously, and for generations, victory was always a matter of bullets and brawn, who had the better military machine, but this is a battle for hearts and minds as much as it is for bullets and, and brawn, and it's very different. And as, even if we shift the lens from human-induced tragedy, we've witnessed Mother Nature inflict all sorts of her own brand of destruction. It was actually five years ago that an Asian tsunami killed 250,000 people in a single day. 
Indonesia and Sri Lanka. Again, this was something that a generation had never seen before. A 9.2 magnitude earthquake off the island of Sumatra is the mightiest earthquake in 40 years. And the results were, that's hard to comprehend. You get your mind around that? A quarter of a million people wiped off the map in a single day. Things like that are ominous. And they make you scratch your head and kind of wonder, like, what is, what's going on here? And of course, this year we've come through a global recession. World markets have crashed, robust economies kind of imploded, and, and then markets have undergone this fundamental restructuring, debts ballooned, government bailouts and fear and insecurity has gripped many, many people. And, and though it has since stabilized, and now we're kind of making our way out of the recession, everyone has been left with this nagging sense that something fundamental has changed here, and things will never be the same again. And in the midst of all this upheaval, we have witnessed the historic election of Barack Obama, the first African-American president of the United States. His inauguration, if you remember, left many very hopeful and inspired, a very historic moment that the world watched. I mean, who would have thought that possible? Just eight years earlier, the names Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, kind of struck universal dread into people's hearts. And eight years later, we elect a man named Barack Hussein Obama as the leader of the free world. And I don't mean to imply anything by that. It's just that we live in interesting times. Fascinating times, don't we? I mean, there's a tectonic shifts in politics, economics, global conflicts, and ideologies, and it's enough to make anyone scratch their head and say, how does, how does all of this fit together? And can anyone help make sense of all this instability and change? And this is precisely where prophecy comes in. Prophecy is defined as the ability to predict or forecast the future before it happens. In the 90s, you could hardly flip through cable TV without uh, coming upon uh, the psychic network. Remember that? Miss Cleo, right? She's out of business now. You would have thought she would have seen that coming. Uh, but it was, it was a big deal. It was a big deal at that time. But there's been this wave of interest year after year in prophecy and end times predictions. In fact, every year we see movies like 2012. Did you see that trumpeting the end of the world? A renewed interest in the Mayan calendar and the predictions of Nostradamus movies always come, you know, the last day is Armageddon. Every year, Will Smith rescues our nation. <laughs> Recently, the Left Behind series of 16 best-selling novels became New York Times bestsellers. It's built around the end-time themes like rapture, the Antichrist, the tribulation, events which leave our world shattered and chaotic. And, and that, that, what's amazing is this series is based on ancient prophecy, on Revelation, Isaiah, Ezekiel. These the books, the source books are 2,600 years old, and yet these novels have sold now more than 65 million copies worldwide. Prophecy is a hot topic. And if a recent survey is any indication, it's more than fiction to most. It's a matter of belief. A nationwide poll in February 2006 asked adults if they agree with the following statement. See if you would agree with this. It says, events such as the rebirth of the state of Israel, wars and instability in the Middle East, Recent earthquakes and the tsunami in Asia are evidence that we are living in what the Bible calls the last days. Remarkably, more than four out of ten Americans said they agreed. And what's most remarkable is that it wasn't just kind of rural southerners from the Bible Belt. That's the stereotype in the modern media, right? One in three residents of New England, which is thought to be the liberal, you know, bastion, said, yeah, I think we are living in their last days. My sense is that's because the Red Sox won the World Series. That's a sign of the apocalypse. You know, that's kind of how that goes. <laughs> Four in ten Democrats said, yeah, we're living in the last days. Half of all Republicans agree. One in three Jews 
believe we are living in the last days. And catch this, this is fascinating. Six out of ten young people, that's aged 18 through 25, believe we are living in the last days. Now, just because tens of millions of people say they believe biblical prophecy is coming true before their very eyes doesn't mean that they actually view current events through the right filter. See, most people, if you're normal, you view events through one of two primary lenses, economics or politics, money and power, because cash and profit, markets, it all makes the world go around, men are after power. That's what the Middle East is all about. It's a big battle over oil, right? Land, borders, people, control, politics. It's been going on since the birth of man. Those are the two primary lenses that most of the world interprets history and predicts future events. But there's a third lens that I want to introduce you today that I think opens up a whole new way of viewing the flow of history, and that's the third lens of Scripture. And the idea here is that ancient Scripture provides a window into the mind of the map maker, into the mind of God, the master planner, who uses all of these plot points along the timeline of history to achieve his sovereign will. And prophecy is unique because it allows us to interpret the times through this third lens, not just economics, not just politics, but the third lens of the written word of God. Now, if you turn to Luke chapter 12, you'll see Jesus sharply criticized his followers for not using the third lens of Scripture to actually interpret current events. He said this. This is fascinating. When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately say it's going to rain, and it does. You guys know how to predict the weather. And when the south wind blows, you say, oh, it's going to be hot, and it is. And then he said, hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that what? You don't know how to interpret this present time. And basically, Jesus is saying, you guys know how to do a five-day forecast. (laughs) It's cloudy, chance of flurries, check it on your iPhone, everyone can do this. But he said, you guys can't even connect the dots of what's happening right in front of you. And you know what? That's the truth. The people in Jesus' day, they could forecast the weather, but they couldn't recognize the signs of the coming spiritual crisis. That's a fact. For instance, they couldn't see the coming conflict with the Roman Empire right in front of them. They could not see the predicted Messiah, the one that the Old Testament made over and over again, prophesied would come, was standing right in front of them. In fact, they were so blind, they screwed up and actually killed the wrong man. They they couldn't connect the dots, and see what was coming. 2,000 years later, I think modern followers of Christ are being asked the same question. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? And that's one of my goals for this series, honestly. To help you learn to connect the dots and see current events through that third lens of Scripture that opens your eyes to what's happening. Now, here's the deal. Obviously, all events um, are not described in the Bible, and heaven knows there's, there's, there's no shortage of nut jobs who abuse prophecy and make the rest of us roll our eyes. In fact, that's a little bit in my, uh, just to be honest with you, a little bit of a challenge in my mind of biblical prophecy. It's what I call the wackadoodle factor. All right, Let's just, that's the technical term. Uh, growing up, I remember our church would host traveling preachers on Sunday nights in the summer, and they would come and speak about end times prophecies, and what they would do is they would bring bed sheets on stage with markers and paint, and they would draw these charts with dates and times and, and predictions about who the Antichrist was, and basically stir up all this like fear and anxiety in everyone on Sunday nights. And of course, afterwards, they had you know, a pamphlet or a book they were trying to sell. But the Bible says 
that we actually have limitations when it comes to forecasting the future. In Mark 13, Jesus says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only who? The Father. So what? Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. When I was a teenager, there was a book predicting that 1984 was the end of the world, and 1984 came and went. And then it was Y2K. You remember that? Now it's 2012. See, there's a limitation to our interpretation of prophecy. In fact, based on what Jesus says here, if anybody walks up to you or you read about someone who's giving a specific date and time that the world is going to end, you can be pretty sure of one thing. That's definitely not the day or hour. <laughs> it will occur. Well, that's one's out. <laughs> and that's why I decided to call this series 2000 and X. Because many of the events that we're going to be talking about could occur in my lifetime or my children's lifetime or their children's lifetime. It's the X factor. Jesus said, you, you, don't, you don't know when that time will occur. We've been given certain signs to read scripturally, but not for the purpose of making detailed sequential predictions because that would actually be a hindrance, not a help to our faith. And so all of this to say, any talk of prophecy or the end times has to be approached with a distinct degree of humility. Can we say that together? Humility. That's crucial in this series. So I am not going to be telling you to get ready for October 10th this year. You know what's going to happen on October 10th, right? It's 10, 10, 10. Something's going to happen. You know, that's, how, that's kind of how... This isn't about sounding the alarm. That's not the goal of this series. The goal of this series, simply put, is to do what Jesus instructs us to do. Be on guard. Be alert. Pay attention. Learn how to interpret the present time. Learn where we are so that you can learn how to live in light of God's prophetic timeline. Humility and confidence. Does that sound good? All right. So that's what we're going to do today as I briefly introduce you now to the first sign of Scripture and set our course for the weeks to come. But uh, you know, before we do that, let's just take a moment to pray and ask God to bring his insight. Father, um, your word says that you haven't actually given us a spirit of fear, but of faith and love and a sound mind. And so that's what I pray for right now. Um, a sound mind insight, wisdom as we examine your word in humility, we actually ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us into your eternal truth. Guide us not with the mind of man, but the mind of Christ. And protect our hearts and our minds as we learn to live in light of eternity. We ask that in Jesus' very good and reliable name. Amen. All right. Well, the first sign that I would likely to briefly introduce you to is... Um, is really just a baby. In fact, I'll go to my magic map to show you here. It's kind of cool. Our creative team came up with this magic map. Take a look at this. I'll take us all the way back, and you can take a look on Google Earth. Not bad, huh? Anyone want to take a guess at this is? She's kind of small nation. She's a little less than the size of New Jersey. Yeah, Israel is the starting point for ancient prophecy, and here's the deal. She is the future staging ground for all events that will literally change my future and your future. Israel is hard to miss nowadays. She has now celebrated her 60th anniversary. She's pretty young for a country. And yet Israel is featured in our nightly news more than any other nation than the United States. Now, why is that? To really understand why that is, you need to turn back the clock. I'll give you a little bit of a history lesson to May 14, 1948. This is when the United Nations recommended the British military leave the area of Palestine and at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Israel's Prime Minister, that's David Ben-Gurion, stepped to the microphone 
and announced by virtue of our natural and historic right, we hereby declare the establishment of the state of Israel. And they picked the Star of David for their national symbol on their flag. And on May 14, 1948, a nation was born. How many of you were actually alive then? Okay, a few people, all right. Are the people with gray hair like, uh, sort of, you know, I'm just here. At that moment, 6,000 miles away in the White House, Harry S. Truman was the first head of state, the President of the United States, to officially recognize Israel's birth with these words. The government has been informed that a Jewish state has been proclaimed in Palestine. The United States recognizes the provisional government as de facto authority of the new state of Israel. Within 24 hours, the very next day, Israel was attacked by a coalition of Arab states, hostile to the newborn nation. Day one of birth, attacked. But she survived, and she grew. And today, over 60 years later, she stands as the geopolitical center of the world. You ever watch CNN or, or the nightly news, and you wonder, how does she do this? How does a, a nation with a population of, uh, of a little less than 6 million people do this? How, how does a fledgling country the size of New Jersey, make global headlines every night? Answer? Because Israel was the ancient starting point and will be the future staging ground for all events of biblical prophecy. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Take out your map, your text, your Bible. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. That's the book of beginnings. I'll show you what I'm talking about. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, as you might know, cover the story of creation, the fall of man, and human history up to the time of Abraham. But then he, the next 38 chapters deal with the life stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the Jewish race, which pretty much tells you something about how important God considers the Jewish people in the arc of history. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God made a covenant with Abraham, who was to be father of the Jewish nation. Here's what he said. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will what? I will bless you. I will make your name great, and what? You will be a blessing. When you look at these three promises God made, you see that one, I will make your name great. That day in 1948, the immigration into Israel began, and 650,000 Jews began pouring back into their homeland. And now the Jewish population in Israel today is over 5.4 million people. I will make your name great. Another 5 million live in the United States. Altogether, about 13 million Jews worldwide. And that's incredible, considering that 6 million Jews were wiped off the map in the Holocaust. I mean, throughout history, their name has been great, and they have been a blessing. They've been a blessing to you. They've been a blessing to me, particularly to the Christian community. I mean, when you consider that without the Jews, we don't have this. We have no Bible. Every one of these 66 books was written by a Jewish author. Without the Jews, there would have been no Jesus. <laughs> With no Jesus, who was a Jew, there would be no Christianity. They have been a blessing to all peoples on earth, far disproportionate to their numbers. But then look finally in Genesis 12, 3, God says this, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we've seen that promise kept faithfully, even right here in our own country. After World War II, America became the de facto homeland for the Jewish people, and we have been blessed 
as we've stood by Israel, we have supported her sovereignty, we have safeguarded the religious freedom of Jewish people. Conversely, those who've attacked this tiny country have not done terribly well throughout history. Assyria, Babylon, the Roman Empire, they have been the ones wiped from the map. Brutal regimes all the way from ancient Egypt to modern Germany have likewise failed in their attempts to crush the Jewish people. And so in every way, you see God fulfilled this ancient prophecy to Abraham here in Genesis 12. This is, this is, this is foundational. And yet 4,000 years later, to this very day, who controls this tiny plot of land is the most volatile issue in international politics. And that's because God's covenant with Israel was unlike any other in human history. In Deuteronomy 7, God himself declared, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his what? Let's say it together, his treasured possession. One commentator said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. <laughs> why did God choose the Jews? I mean, of all the empires on earth, why Israel, his treasured possession? Certainly it is not their numbers. <laughs> I mean, although Israel thrives today, the Jewish people represent less than two-thirds of 1% of the world's total population. It's not their numbers. And it was not their spiritual sensitivity. <laughs> the entire remainder of the Old Testament is the long and just sorry record. <laughs> of how Israel abandoned God and actually rebelled against him. So why did God choose the Jews? Answer, because it was part of his sovereign purpose for all of humankind to do so. He wanted a people who would represent him to every nation and every tribe around the globe. Even when they weren't faithful, he would remain faithful to them, committed to them. And the central sign of his covenant was the promise of land. Genesis 15, 18, you can flip over there, tells us, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And, and here you see God kind of spelling out geographical boundaries of this land that he's gifting to, to the Jews. And here's the deal. This is not spiritualized language. You'll, you, you notice he's talking about specific real estate here. You see he's drawing boundaries? These are identifiable today. The river of Egypt, of course, would be by the, 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 the valley of the, of the Nile River. What's the river in Egypt? And the Euphrates still runs today through modern day. Does anybody know? Iraq. Hmm, interesting. And if you look, this is Israel right here. This little speck right here, the size of New Jersey in the middle of the Middle, of the middle East, you'll see she does not currently possess all the land God promised to her. In fact, biblically speaking, if Israel were to occupy all the land promised here, it looked like this. They would control all of present-day Israel, Lebanon, the West Bank of Jordan, and substantial portions of Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq. That was God's promise. An incredible promise. A gift to his treasured possession. And notice, that pledge was not just to Abraham, but to all of his descendants up to this present day. In Genesis 17, 7, God said, I will establish my covenant as a what? As a everlasting covenant between me and you and who? Your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to who? You and your descendants 
after you. And God says something twice pretty important, and I will be their God. And suddenly you start realizing why Israel is the epicenter of biblical prophecy. Millennia upon millennia ago, God said Israel would be the ancient starting point and the ultimate staging ground for all future events. Unfortunately, Israel blew it. In many ways, she didn't live up to her covenant obligations to God. and her failure to be faithful, she began running after foreign gods, resulted in her being scattered to the four corners of the globe. The promised land was overrun by Gentile kings. Year after year, she was scattered. That was actually part of the prophecy God gave that Israel ignored. In Deuteronomy 4.27, it says, The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. Time and again, God told them, I'm a jealous God. Have no other gods before me. And time and again, Israel said, well, whatever, I'm going my own way. I'm doing my own thing. And God said, you want to do your own thing? Fine, get out. You're not a good tenant of the promised land. And in AD 70, the Roman emperor Titus destroyed Jerusalem, sacked it. And the Jewish people were scattered like dust to the four corners of the globe. They spent the next 1,900 years removed from their homeland. And they were stomped on by nation after nation. If you want to read a good book that details their sorry history, try the Old Testament. (laughs) 1,900 years in exile, almost two millennia of misery. And throughout that time of their scattering, Israel has suffered greatly. Perhaps most of all, in the years just prior to her rebirth in the 1940s, of which this clip is a reminder. Before and during World War II, Jews throughout Europe were the target of merciless state-sponsored persecution. In 1933, nine million Jews lived in 21 European countries. By 1945, two out of three European Jews had been murdered. When the smoke finally cleared, the terrible truth came out. The Holocaust brought about the extermination of one-third of the worldwide Jewish population at the time. Following the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, mobile killing units following the German army began shooting massive numbers of Jews on the outskirts of conquered cities and towns. Seeking more efficient means to accomplish their obsession, the Nazis created a private and organized method of killing huge numbers of Jewish civilians. Extermination centers were established in Poland. Millions died in the ghettos and concentration camps through starvation, execution, brutality, and disease. Of the six million Jews murdered during the Second World War, more than half were exterminated in the Nazi death camps, and the names Treblinka, Auschwitz, and Dachau became synonymous with the horrors of the Holocaust. Jewish people were chosen by God. And after they abandoned him, they were scattered. And across time, they have suffered greatly on a scale that most of us cannot even begin to imagine. When I visited the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, maybe you've been there, I will never get out of my mind that that pile of shoes that's at the entrance. Have you seen that if you've gone there? 
It's a mound of over 4,000 shoes left behind by men, women, children, and infants who were gassed to death at a Nazi prison in Poland. It was jarring to me the first time I saw that because this this heap of, of souls, of human souls, so much suffering and loss, you can't even get your mind around it. In the history of humankind, there has never been a people who have suffered so much persecution from pogroms to genocide. The fact that the Jewish people have not only survived, but thrived, indicates something much more than resilience or dumb luck. There is divine promise at work here. Do you see this? One that traces all the way back to the ancient prophecy in Genesis. Think about this. Among all, if you want to really bake your potato, look at Genesis this week. Among all of Israel's contemporaries, not one of them exists as a people today. You can't find the ancient neighbors of the Jews anywhere. Have you, has anyone here ever met a Moabite? Does anyone know, well, what's the zip code of the Ammonites? You know, did God to lunch with an Edomite? No! <laughs> the ancient people disappeared from the map of history in the face of the earth, and yet the Jews, just as God promised, returned to their land in your lifetime. That's why the return of the Jewish people to Israel on May 14, 1948, was unprecedented in human history because never before had an ancient decimated people managed to retain their individual identity almost through almost 20 centuries and reestablish their nation in their original homeland. See, God made another prophecy that we have witnessed in our Lifetime. In Ezekiel 36, he prophesied that the Jewish people would not suffer forever. He promised, for I will take you out of the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you where, let's read it together, back into your own land. May 14, 1948 was more than a blip, a political blip on history's timeline. When we look at that through the third lens of Scripture, it was a prophetic fulfillment on the eternal timeline of God. And in many ways, guys, this marks the beginning of Israel's relevance to our life today. Because just as Israel was the ancient starting point in Genesis, she will be the future staging ground for the events of Revelation, as we'll see in the weeks to come. This week, I want to invite you to prick up your ears and watch for mentions of Israel in the news. You will quickly see that she is ground zero for current tensions in the Middle East. I want you to think of it this way. If Israel is the epicenter of prophecy, the epicenter of Israel is Jerusalem. And the epicenter of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount. That little piece of parcel, that land with the gleaming gold dome. You ever see that? It's about 35 acres. And it's the most hotly contested religious site in the world. It's because it's the site where two Jewish temples were located. And that's why it's the number one holiest site in all of Judaism. But check this, it's also the third holiest site in Islam because it's the location of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in the Dome of the Rock. That's the oldest existing Islamic structure in the world. And although this 35 acres has been controlled by Israel since 1967, both Israel and the, ancient, or the, uh, the Palestinian Authority, I should say, they both claim sovereignty over this site. And that's why it's the epicenter of the epicenter of the epicenter. And this is the flashpoint for the Israeli-Arab conflict. Now, 
even if you aren't religious or particularly of faith, you'd have thought history would have taught would-be aggressors against Israel some lessons. But think again. Because that anti-Semitism persists today. Most recently, the president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, has openly declared that Israel should be wiped off the map. In fact, let me not use my own words, but I will go to our magic map and let him tell you himself. Taking aim once again at Israel and the United States, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad repeated inflammatory comments that he made three years ago, saying Israel would soon disappear. Ahmadinejad first made the remarks in 2005, fueling international outrage and speculation that he was threatening the Jewish state with a nuclear weapon. But while speaking at a ceremony honoring the late founder of Iran's Islamic Republic, Ahmadinejad told an audience that, quote, this origin of corruption will soon be wiped off the Earth's face. Ahmadinejad also called the U.S. a satanic power that, with God's will, would be annihilated. On Tuesday, Ahmadinejad arrived in Rome for a U.N. summit designed to help combat skyrocketing food prices worldwide. His attendance at the meeting was denounced by both Jewish leaders and a host of political and activist groups. John Belmont, the Associated Press. Disturbing. Not only has he declared death to Israel, which is considered the little Satan, the United States earns the title of the great Satan, Ahmadinejad has gone on record denying that the Holocaust has ever even happened. And all of this is set against the backdrop of Iran ramping up its nuclear program in pursuit of the atomic bomb. You feel the tension here, don't you? I mean, th think about that. I mean, we're in the United States. Think about that. If the Prime Minister of Canada, who, uh, who, who is that? Alex Trebek? Who is that? Imagine the Prime Minister of Canada publicly announced tomorrow that America should be wiped off the map and then went on to say, we have a great atomic nuclear weapons program. To say there'd be problems is an understatement. <laughs> and this has become a matter of grave concern to our country, the United States, who stands with Israel and wants to see peace in the Middle East, not history repeating. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but on Christmas Eve, the New York Times ran an op-ed article with the title, There's Only One Way to Stop Iran, and the author went on to say, and that's really for the U.S. or the Israel, take your pick, to bomb them. And it went on to detail how 2010 is going to be a decisive watershed year in our response to Iran's nuclear ambitions, which is the heart of their threat to the people of Israel. It's absolutely fascinating to, 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 to watch. Because although the New York Times, obviously, what do they interpret current events through? The lens of politics, economics. Oh, this is all about oil. We'll get to oil. When you look through the third lens of Scripture, you are going to see the dots start to connect as you see history unfold in your lifetime. Because this is where our future meets ancient prophecy. The rebirth of the nation of Israel, that is a modern miracle in our lifetime. And it is setting the table for all future events, as you're going to see next week. Because it's the beginning of fulfillment of God's prophecy in Ezekiel 36. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. May 14, 1948 had to occur to set the stage for the final fulfillment of the rest of prophecy. And here's most importantly, it helps us pinpoint where we are on history's timeline, as you're going to see. As author Milton Lindbergh pointed out, he said, without the existence of the nation of Israel, we would not be able to say with certainty that we are in the last days. That single event, more than any other, is the most prominent sign that we are living in the final moments 
before the coming of Jesus. The Jewish people have been called God's timepiece of the ages. Are you catching the significance of this? Why has a tiny little nation, no bigger than New Jersey, managed to capture worldwide attention, become the geopolitical epicenter of all politics, economics, religious wars? Answer, because they've been chosen from all eternity by God himself. They are a chosen people, his treasured possession. And the stage is being set for a global return, not only of the Jewish people to their land, but also a return to the God of Israel himself. I need to say this. So far, what has happened with Israel is primarily the result of a secular Zionist movement. Okay, It's not a spiritual movement. Whereas Ezekiel prophesied about a spiritual return of God's people to him, one where he would actually give them a new heart. That's what he says, a new heart. Put a new heart, a new spirit in, in you. His prophecy says this, I will put my spirit in you, God says, and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And what? You will live in the land I gave your daddy, your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. You guys know how a shadow works, right? The sun gets behind something and then it sends it on ahead. The physical return of the Jews to Israel is simply a shadow. And it is literally forecasting a future spiritual return to the God of Israel. So, why should you care? <laughs> why should you care about this tiny speck on a map, which undoubtedly you will hear about in the news uh, this year? Because the current rumblings in the Middle East will change your future. They will change my future. That is without a doubt. How exactly will this happen? That's what next week is about. And I hope you're going to come back, actually, for part two, as we, I'm going to connect the dots between oil, Islam, and Israel. And you're going to see how the modern events we're witnessing fit into God's prophetic timeline. Sound good? Now listen, here's the deal. Before I end, I would be remiss right now if I don't just kind of call out what some of you are feeling. I just need to say this because I see it right now. I see you. Some of you are literally leaning on the edge of your chair and you're like, oh, this is awesome. This is going to be great. I can't wait. And others of you, you're, you're starting to freak out a little bit, okay? Because you could freak out on this stuff, okay? And I've noticed people typically take one of two tacks. On the one hand, some folks just get downright nutty about this stuff, Right? They start, you know, stockpiling cans of dried peaches in their basement. You know, here it comes. I'm gonna get it. You subscribe to wackadoodle blogs, and then you start forwarding me emails, uh, okay? <laughs> Outing Obama at the Antichrist. You spell the letters, you know, okay, don't email me that stuff. Don't email me that stuff. They get crazy. And it's a shame. You know why? Because you make other people tune out. They're put off by, by the hysteria, by the way, which is often political, not third-lens scriptural. On the other hand, people, other people, they tune out. They're ignorant because, you know, they say, well, you know what? I don't know. They, no one really knows what's going to happen. It's like God's rolling a, a giant pair of cosmic dice. That's where the symbol of our series comes from. It's like God's rolling these dice, and, and who knows what combo is going to come up next. I mean, Jesus wins in the end. All right, go Israel. So that's good enough for me. <laughs> that, is as, that is as ignorant as the first extreme, I want to help us meet in the middle here, people, between these two tensions, as Jesus instructs us to do. Remember his words? He says, how is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? What did he tell us? Be on guard. Be alert. You don't know when that time will come. 
When it comes to prophecy, Jesus' instruction can be summed up this way. Ready for it? Big biblical moment. Pay attention, but don't freak out. That's literally what Jesus is saying. Pay attention, but don't let your hearts be troubled because everything you see happening is ultimately part of God's plan of salvation. He is the author of this story. He is captain of this epic journey across human history, and he wants you to understand where he's steering things, but he doesn't want you to freak out in the process. That's not helpful. I feel like I got a prophetic word uh, about this for you today on a flight I was on returning from Orlando to uh, Newark Airport. Uh, We ran into turbulence. It was 83 degrees and sunny in Orlando, 38 degrees in Newark, snowing, lovely. As we approached Newark, we hit turbulence, things get bumpy, and you you look out the window, zero visibility. So all of a sudden, what happens? Bing! Fasten your seatbelt sign comes on, right? And, uh, you know, at that moment, I, you know, so click, and then you notice the airline attendants, they start scurrying for their seats, which always makes me a little nervous, like, when that happens, like, okay. Uh, and then this voice comes on overhead from the cockpit. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Uh, just turn on the fastened seatbelt sign for your safety. And I'd ask you to return to your seats. The weather is cloudy. There's some snow and sleet ahead, but uh, things are going to get a little choppy. And again, as I looked at the passengers around me, there, was, there were two reactions. One were the white knucklers. You ever see those people? They gripping the armrest because in turbulence, everyone gets very religious, no matter what your faith is. Everyone starts praying. Oh, okay. The guy across the aisle from me was reading the sports section. He turned his iPod up because he didn't want to hear the captain's warning. And when it comes to prophecy, I think we are faced with a similar choice. You can freak out like I did for about three minutes, or you could just kind of ignore it like the guy across from me or realize, you know what, at the end of the day, There's a captain in the cockpit who is responsible for taking us somewhere. He has charted our flight. He has access to radar and maps, things we can't see. And here's what he's generously done. He's given us his spoken word, his voice, thoughtful enough to give us updates and at times warnings. And we're supposed to pay attention, but don't freak out. Why? Because at the end of the day, it's a matter of faith. Only one person is in charge of that plane as it hurtles through the air to its destination, and only he is capable of altering the outcome. This is the sovereignty of God, which can either make you feel incredibly helpless because you can't control what's going to happen, or very liberating, (laughs) because you realize the futility of obsessing over every bump, and you actually can release control of the pilot, and and you can put your trust in his ability to navigate the coming turbulence. And that's the approach I want us to take as a church. As we approach prophecy over the next few weeks, um, this, see this as a chance, folks, to increase your trust, your faith in the sovereign control of the God of the universe, the one who has charted the map of history, who already knows the outcome and graciously gives us sign and he gives us forecasts of the weather pattern ahead. He says, pay attention, folks, but don't freak out. I'm in control. I know where I'm taking this thing. And you don't, because you don't have a Northwest pilot at the helm. You have the living God who not, is, is not only behind the clouds, he rides on them. Amen? Amen? Remember, from beginning to end, the premise of the entire Bible is that there's a sovereign God writing and directing this drama we call life. He's been architecting this thing, this plot line, for thousands of years, and he alone can get us where we're supposed to go. So, if you are a heat-seeking end-timer, chillax a minute, okay? Conversely, those of you who are oblivious, hey, bing, pay attention. The seatbelt light just went on, and Jesus says things are going to get a little bumpy, but don't freak out because I will return. That, there will be an epic end-all between good and evil, as we will see, and, and 
I'll let you in. I've read the last chapter. <laughs> a spoiler alert. Put your hands over. God wins, okay? I don't want to spoil it for some of you. Humility, confidence as we read the signs together. Amen? Let's hear for God. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful to you. You are the author of life, the Alpha and Omega from beginning to the very end, and you have given us a glimpse into your mind today, starting with just a man, and he is good as dead and building a nation, a people, through whom came your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are thankful to you. Lord, we ask that you, you, we, we commit ourselves to your hand, and we ask for your hand to be over our our, our plain Father, as you fly us, as you take us, and you have committed us to be a, a people who serve you, who love you, and stand as a witness to the rest of the world. I pray that would happen in our church. In the name of Jesus, we all said together.